0: Welcome everyone to the Seek Go Create podcast. This is your host, Tim Wenders, And I am excited about today. I mean, I'm excited about all our interviews, but uh, part of the goal of the interviews is to just talk to cool and interesting people and just turn on the mic and let people listen in. So today, and I'm gonna read an exact introduction from the front of his book. I have Kevin Sandlin and Kevin, you're you're laughing here. Kevin is a tech entrepreneur, husband to the girl who put a tack in his seat in the sixth grade, father of two kids adopted from from Kazakhstan, and the founder of Pitch Practice, the longest running weekly meetup in the Atlanta startup community, and so much more. I'm reading that from the front of the book. We're going to discuss later, Practice Your Pitch. Kevin, hello there. How are you?
1: I'm great, Tim. Thank you for having me.
0: I'm excited that you're here. Listen, I, I... I have to say that we possibly go way back. We maybe were acquaintances, maybe didn't know each other that well, but we may bring that up shortly. We may not. There's some things I don't think we want to kick those rocks over and go there, but come on, (laughs) we may. uh, I I want to start off by saying this though, you know, part of this podcast is, is talking to leaders and business owners and entrepreneurs and, people in ministry and people just striving to create and build things. And Kevin fits every one of those categories. I mean, he is like Renaissance man or confused one or the other, right, Kevin, which one would <laughs> yeah, definitely one?
1: don't fall into Renaissance man.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: That, that doesn't apply. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a lot of things. I don't think that label applies.
0: So, so about a year or so back, I was working with a client and they were having, they're out of the Bay Area in San Francisco and they were having to do some pitches and, and the people they were working with said they weren't doing so well with it. And so I said, hmm, I think I recall that someone I'm connected with on Facebook wrote a book a while back. So I started doing some snooping around and I found Practice Your Pitch, which Kevin wrote a little while back. And, and we reached out, had a conversation, but I got the book then, read it, pulled some great points, Help the client. They've done very well. It wasn't exactly pure pitches, but in a little while, we're going to dive into this book because I believe, and I know Kevin believes, that someone who can pitch has value in society in many, many areas. And so we're going to go into that. But Kevin, before I go any farther, I'm going to kind of put you on the spot and make you give a pitch. What do you do? <laughs>
1: Uh, I'm glad I didn't know that was coming. Um, well, the, the, the classic line here is when you know I'm here to solve a problem. So um, when my clients, whoever they are, wherever they come from, when they get to a point in their business that they got there through brute force and their network and, uh, and who they know and, and what they built, kind of the first the friend the friendly customers, when they get to a point where they probably reached about a million in, in sales or so, and they don't have any any way to reach that next audience that's where i play and what i solve is that problem of okay what content can you share that will attract a new audience and most people don't know what content they have they don't know how to create new content and they don't know how to distribute that new content and what i do is help them realize you do have content everybody does it's just a matter of where it's coming from and then i help them create a process that's repeatable so that it doesn't feel like pulling teeth every time they need to run a campaign, if you will, or it should be a repeated process. Not only this repeatable, but it is repeated weekly, daily, every time, everything you do is creating content.
0: Okay, cool. Now, and, and one of the terms for that is I know you do consulting and you, you work with clients, but I also saw the term fractional. Uh, partner or fractional sea level. Tell tell us just a, a little bit about what that is, because that's intriguing to me. Sure. So tech- confusing.
1: <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, it's uh, something that has to be explained, which is never good. So Tech CXO is the company I work for, and we are a group of uh, very experienced, which is another way of saying old, uh, very experienced executives who have had. Uh, different types of experience. So it started off with, with CFO, the financial, financial officers only. And um, they, the guy, who, the two guys who started the company, one of them had a job lined up, moved back to Atlanta when he was in his late 20s or maybe early 30s. And, um, and when the day he arrived back in Atlanta, moved to Atlanta, the job fell through for whatever reason. And so he said, all right, well, I got to have an income. So he went out and said, met some people. I don't know the exact details but he said, let me, let me be your CFO. You know, you don't need a full-time CFO. You need 10, 15 hours a week, and you need five hours a week and you need 20 hours a week. And so what that became was this term fractional. So he's this, he was the CFO for, for four or five different companies and that it grew. They he brought in a, the, the other co-founder and they've slowly grown it out and it was uh, only CFOs and about, I believe it was 10 or 11 years ago, they said, let's add other letters to between C and O. And, uh, and that has formed the CTO practice, the CMO practice, the COO practice. And it's just grown like that. We're, we're almost at 100 partners now. And uh, somewhere in the range of $30 million this year in revenue. And so what I do, for example, I'm the fractional CMO for four different companies at the moment. And that may mean for one of them, it's literally half an hour a day. it's because it's doing the basic marketing that they don't have. They don't have somebody to do that. And the idea is that they're, I created the process that's working. It's creating demand. It's creating leads and it's pushing out content that they didn't know they had. So it's very easy for them to now go hire somebody and to do that role, to, to do, to repeat what was created. And then the next step, I'll work myself out of that job, but then they'll say, okay, we we got from 1 million to 3 million. What do we got to do to get from three to five? five to ten you, you understand the drill so um that's i spend 10 to 15 to 20 to 30 hours a week with any given client
0: excellent Depend,
1: depending on their needs
0: and uh d- do you ever does your head spin do you ever get confused as to who you're working with during that time all the like time you're on a run you want to call with someone and go wait this is joe from so-and-so I'm, i don't want to call you out here this is being recorded but
1: No, it happens all the time. I I haven't yet. I'm sure I will. I haven't yet stepped in it. Um, I, I almost say something and, you know, you know, by default, um, zoom is on mute when you join, which is a good thing. And, uh, so I always make sure before I speak, okay, that's all right. I know what team I'm on. and I've got the right document up the right spreadsheet up and the right notes up and I can speak intelligently, but it, it that's one of my struggles as a, fractional consultant with multiple clients is making sure I'm focused on any given one at any given time because the brain can't do two things at once. And the Kevin can't handle more than one client in one brain thought. It's not possible. But
0: but but I think one thing, tell me if I'm right or wrong on this because I noticed this a little bit with what I do also. I do some consulting and coaching is that it also brings value to the one client because of the work you're doing with multiple. What are your thoughts on that?
1: No question. So a uh, great example, you know, just a, a detailed example is uh, with one client, we implemented HubSpot as their marketing cloud and CRM and CMS early, early this year and walked through that whole implementation and got up running, got content green, got uh, marketing automation workflows created, got lead gen going. And then the next client says, what, do we should, what should we use as our CRM? So, well, we got lots of choices. Um, and I have worked with other ones, but I said, you know, right now for what we are doing, I, I have no financial, uh, interest in it. It doesn't matter to me, but I know that that HubSpot would work and I know the steps involved. So there there's not a learning curve mm-hmm. and that's the, that's the basis for tech CXO is are you going to hire a marketing manager that you have to bring up a notch or do you want to say, all right, can you guys come in for six months? while we build our marketing team, we want you to run marketing. Cause we know you, we don't have to teach you anything.
0: Right. So, so there's a, it's, it's almost like a mini economies of scale there. It's like it, you.
1: It is. It's a, it's a mini economies of experience. Okay. So, you know, you can, I could teach somebody to do anything that I do, or I could come in and do it and I it would take me, take me, you know, two weeks to teach them one thing, or I can do that one thing in 45 minutes.
0: Right right very cool all right i'm gonna i want to back up a little bit because i'm getting a little ahead and we're gonna we're gonna really dive into the pitch practice here in just a moment but back up give a little bit of your background on how you've i kind of i don't even know if evolved developed into what you've done because if one goes to your linkedin profile if one reads some of your background um, truthfully, one of the first questions that came to my mind is anyone said just settle down and do one thing. And the reason I bring that up, Kevin, is because I've heard the same thing. Usually it's your mother or someone that says, you know, Tim, why don't you just stay there for a little while, you know, just work in one spot for the next 30 years. I don't know if anyone's ever mentioned that to you, but it doesn't appear as if that's your background. Tell us some of the high points or low points or points of Kevin's background.
1: There's high points, low points, and points in between. And so, where you know, I, when I got out of, uh, when I was in graduate school, um, I worked five different jobs, mm-hmm. and to to pay the bills, to pay for school, and uh, to get through graduate school. And when I was, I remember that feeling when I when I got my first job after grad school. I was probably the lowest paid MBA uh, in Georgia State history, um, but I got a job, and I remember thinking. I only have to think about one thing. That is, I, I was so refreshing, and so I went to that job, and it was a great job. It was a startup, and I ended up um, being called upon to sit next to the CEO while we took the company public, and it was just a phenomenal experience. I'm still friends with that CEO. In fact, met, he and I are having lunch later this week. Um, uh, we're still friends with him, and we've been through you know a lot together. And he now works also at TechCXO. Crazy turn of events. So from, from there, I went to another startup, uh, privately funded, and was acquired. And I, through those two experiences with, uh, you know, uh, an IPO and an acquisition, a lot of money changed hands. Uh, none of it was mine. And so I, I remember the, the first one, uh, I did a lot of our work about 11 months you know, nonstop, 60, 70, 80 hours a week trying to get ready for this eight IPO. And about two weeks after the IPO, everything had settled, and the CEO called, called me into his office and he and he said, uh, he said, I want to thank you for all your contributions. And he handed me an envelope, and I knew there was a check in it. And, you know, it's one of those things you, you don't open it in front of him. And uh, I got got home and opened it. And it was uh, after the, the company had raised millions upon millions of dollars and lots of people gotten rich, um, I opened the check, and it was for $250. And I said, which is awesome.
0: Pray, oh, thank you. Fantastic. Yes. Thank you
1: very much. We'll have a great dinner. <laughs> um, and, and then I, I realized that, and then I went through the, the second one, the acquisition and and nothing came out. I was like, wait a minute. Okay. So you have to have ownership to make real wealth. And, uh, and so that, that came quickly. And that's when I started my own business, my first business. And what happens to me generally is when I get going, even in the business that I was running. I hit a point where you and this happens to all startups all businesses the, jo- the the job of a startup is to find a repeatable business model when you find that repeatable business model it's no longer in constant flux and constant change it's no longer to me anyway it was no longer exciting and so uh, we found ourselves running a you know a, a successful business about a million and a half dollars very profitable um, had nice employees I was bored and so what what else and I, I would instead of Instead of, you know, finding exciting ways to grow that I would poke at it and say, what can we break and get better at? And that was, I think my intentions were good, but I didn't know how to go about it. And so I found myself during that time, um, in the midnight, no, the mid early 2000s, 2004 or five, we, we said, let's, let's figure out different businesses that are kind of like this and are related to it. Let's create them. So we launched three different businesses and, uh, that was right around 2005, 2006 that we launched them. You know what happened next? 2007, 2008 happened. They all went away. I mean, completely went away. And so, but it, it became what, what I do. I, I don't like to do just one thing. If you said I had to go to this office from 8 eight a.m. to 6 p.m. every day, or 8 a.m. 5 p.m., whatever, and you're going to pay me a lot of money and the benefits are great, but I have to do the same thing every day. Just pull my fingers out one by one. I don't want any part of it. Um, I, I need constant change and i thrive on change and i enjoy change because change brings out unknown opportunities and uh change is an is a chance in itself to to step out and uh and make new things happen so So, yeah my wife did uh, say have you ever thought about just getting a job
0: Well, I was going to ask you here. One of your first things on your profile is um, sales rep at the AG, AJC, the Atlanta Journal. What if you just stuck with that? What would life have been like for Kevin? Oh, <laughs> that's no, a great, no, no, that's, no, the no, the, no. The, the, the newspaper industry is a great industry. Come on, you could have just stuck with that. You could have been maybe a manager over salespeople by now. See.
1: The thing is, what that doesn't say is that that was door to door from 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. So good job to have during school. It was all students. A a couple of of folks that were, you know, the managers who drove around the the panel vans that we rode in, they made good money. You know, we we were, if we made three or four hundred bucks in a week, we were ecstatic Mm. because for a part-time job, it's really not bad. That was one of my
0: five jobs during graduate school. Sure, 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 sure. All right. So, a couple quick things that I wanna I wanna ask about what you just talked about. Sure. I think you might have glazed over this quickly, but my guess is with three businesses started in the mid two thousands, heading into two thousand seven and eight. I've shared my story with people that might have listened. That we had real estate companies, and I don't have to tell you the rest of that story. Yeah. My guess is there may have been some financial challenges during that time. Would that be correct
1: of our own making? Um, had we not borrowed, um, $250,000 to, for the purpose of growing the business, we did that in 2000 and early 2008, if you can believe that, because we just brought on a huge new client. It was, it was a, a Motorola was the client and we were doing all of their Wi-Fi training incredibly profitable, but we had to have that capital to grow it. So we went out and borrowed it. Um, and had we not done that? No, we wouldn't have, of um, have grown as fast. But when, when that client literally went away, I mean, overnight in January of 2009, Motorola announced that they were splitting the company. One, the one side of the company eventually got purchased by Google and it's gone. It it was $14 billion and there's nothing left of it. Google just soaked up all their patents and everybody has since left the company. The other one makes durable, durable uh, radio things for firemen and policemen. Had we not borrowed that money when that company, when that contract went away in in the first week in January, yeah, it would have been tough because our business did shrink, but it wouldn't have caused the personal conflicts that it did because there were four principles of that company we all personally signed for that loan. And so when the company went away, that contract went away and, and we had to pay back that loan, two of those four said, I'm not paying that back. And I mean, if you have any knowledge of, 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 of contract law and, uh, and borrowing you personally signed for it, therefore I can come after you or the bank can't. And so it, you know, two of the, one of those people, one of those two I've never spoken with since and the other one we speak, um, but we we really shouldn't be allowed in the same room. I mean, it's a, it's a terrible relationship, but uh, we, I could, I could face him today and say hello. The other one, we literally haven't spoken since 2009, 10 years. And so that caused about six or eight months of unbelievable stress trying to work out, okay, What's it going to take for you to, to agree to either pay back the loan or agree to sign it, sign over whatever? And you know, I went to the bank and I said, "Give it all to me. I'll take every bit of it because I'm gonna, I'm gonna create, I'm gonna keep the company. I was the last man standing. Everybody else had left." Mm-hmm. And and I somehow talked the bank into that. I really don't know how, but I ended up with with all the debt, but I also had all their equity. They said, "Yeah, if, if you know, I'll I'll get if." I'll give you my my equity if you take me off of that loan and I did that so that that was the financial thorn in our sides that that made it really 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 bad it was bad already but that made it really bad and and after that once we had that settled and that was a, a known quantity the company actually we, we went from I think we we shrank by about forty percent, and then the following two years, 2010, 2011, we grew by another fifty percent each year, and ended up selling the company in 2012. But that was oh, not that was good. 20, 20, 2009 was not a fun year. Right. It was
0: and listen, I I think anyone who's probably got a little bit of age on them that were in the workforce during that time, myself, others included have similar stories during that time. I mean, and I think, you know, one of the things we don't shy away on this podcast is talking about faith. I, I think sometimes we learn a lot of sell, about ourselves during those times. So what are some things that maybe you learned or didn't or would do differently or just lessons learned? Too many? The
1: easy, one is, the easy one is don't borrow money.
0: <laughs> That's know? a great one. Okay, we'll it make is. note of yeah. that.
1: Yeah, don't <laughs> yes. borrow money, especially when it's, you know, you know, there's nothing tied to it i mean borrow money for a house um yeah that's acceptable because you have a, the house that you can you know if the bank takes the house back and you're off the loan. okay that's that's a miserable trade but it's it's done but when it's we're gonna borrow money to grow a business and it it, it wasn't anything that, and we didn't we didn't have our heads up high enough to see what was coming we weren't reading the wall street journal we were just heads down trying to have fun and grow a business and we did not see 2008 coming did not see it at
0: yeah. all interesting so we were in the real estate business coaching and training nationwide i saw it coming thought we were prepared but we weren't prepared mm. <laughs> so it was like we saw it but still wasn't wasn't there so anyway that's cool so so you you came through that well not that many scars um what'd you learn about dealing with partners what, what are some lessons about partners partnership
1: um the 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 problems with one of the partners uh, one of the four first of all there's there's uh, the three other ones that i could mentioned there's one i still haven't spoken to one i have spoken to we could see each other the other one we still get along great i talked to him almost every probably once twice a month um and he went off and created a great business and but had i had a uh, what i didn't have during that time was a mentor somebody that i could go and talk to to say who had done that before you know 10 15 years older who had had any experience in that, in that kind of business, uh, or a small business area would have been very helpful for him to say, have you thought about doing this? Or what if you did this? Just to, just a sounding board, because one of the biggest, uh, uh polarizing things was uh, the communication between the four of us. I mean, one of the guys literally thought and presented to the group thought that I was trying to force him out of the company. And nothing could have been further from the truth. It, it was just, he, he made this up in his mind. I don't know how or where it came from. And the, me, I just sat there and was just floored. But the other two guys said, that's not happening. I don't, where are you getting this? And he just was relentless in his pursuit of that. And, uh, and you know, after that it went downhill so that we ended up, we have, we had to hire somebody to do nothing but stand between the two of us. I mean, mm-hmm. what a waste of money. Can you manage our relationship? Because we can't. We'll kill each other. And so I think having a mentor during, well, anytime uh, from the good times and the bad uh, will help anyone make it through because you're going to have these ups and downs. And, you know, what you do when you're up is just as important as what you do when you're down. And having a mentor to talk through all of that um, is invaluable. I can't, you can't put a price on that.
0: Yeah. I've heard it said you really learn a lot about yourself and others if you're in partnership or whatever, when there's an abundance of resources, a lot of money, or all of a sudden things get really tight. It sounds like your situation was a great example of that.
1: It, it was actually both because we had the, the biggest, our 2008 was our biggest year ever. And in 2009 we shrunk by almost 50%. Mm,
0: wow. Yeah. All right. Very cool. All right. I want to back up because I'm going to be upset if I don't at least bring this up. There's a little town to the east of Atlanta that both you and I have ties to that, uh, I guess, is that where the tack was placed on the seat that you met? Okay. And I think you were a few years younger than me. I guess we knew of each other, but didn't probably connect much. Um, Great little town, uh, Conyers, Georgia. What is you? Did you grow up there? You grew up there, right?
1: I, I lived there from uh, age five through my parents moved away while I was in college. So I was in, you know, somewhere around 20 ish, 21 when, uh, you know, the, the home that I grew up in, they, they left. They moved out to California. Um, so I lived there for, you know, a good 14, 15 years.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I, I all I think my formative moved, years. We moved there when I was five, and my parents actually still live there. Wow. So still have family there, still have ties and uh, some other things there in Conyers, Georgia. What was, uh, you know, it was a, a interesting story. I just found out the house I grew up in, uh, there was recently a murder in Conyers, Georgia, and it happened in the house that I grew up in on the cul-de-sac down White Oak Court and Pine Forest there. So the area has changed quite a bit. I don't want to get into that necessarily, but um What was the best thing about growing up there and what was maybe a challenge about growing up there and then we'll move along
1: oh the best thing i think was just that it was it was a small it was a country town it was not quite a cow town there weren't weren't a lot of farmers there but it was a small town and um and you kind of you knew where you stood in that town um and then you know the the worst thing was um i i don't know my childhood was was great i had so much fun i did so much stupid stuff and I had so much fun, and I still keep in touch with with a, quite a few friends. We're not as close as, as I am with my college friends, but uh, but I still keep in touch with them. And we can look back very easily on a lot of very, very stupid but fun things that we did in Conyers, Georgia.
0: <laughs> we had a great soccer program there, didn't we? I,
1: I played soccer. That's where I started playing soccer at age seven. And, uh, you know, I played all four years at Heritage. Yeah.
0: Excellent. And I think while we were there is kind of when the little town got swallowed up by Atlanta. And now it's not really a small town anymore. It's really yeah. Atlanta. Part of the suburbs, yeah. Yeah, and that was kind of the sad part. Um, a, couple of, a couple of personal things. I've got three things here that I wanted to ask you about. Um, number one, I, I love the story, or I've heard parts of it, I believe, about the adoption of your children. Yeah. So tell, tell them a little bit about that. Just maybe give us a little what happened. I think that's a beautiful story and I I love what I know about it. So tell, tell more about that.
1: Okay. So, uh, you know, my wife and I got married in 93 and uh, looked forward to having kids and um, you know, about 10 or so years went by, we realized that there weren't any kids. And so we went to a, to a uh, fertility specialist and, and they said, you know, there's, there's some issues. Um, And we ended up going down through the, uh, the, the, what do you call it? I can't remember the name of the. My mind's slipping here as we get old. Um, sorry.
0: All You'll the calls we had.
1: out. Yeah, yeah um, the the agency. <laughs> no, no. This is the 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 actual treatment for fertility.
0: In vitro yes, or. Yes. Uh...
1: Thank you. Um, and we did in vitro and and uh, didn't work. Mm. And, uh, and the, the doctor who, you know, we, we, he said, you really got one shot at this and we, we do, we do everything and it didn't work. And the doctor who delivered that message wasn't the best at delivering that message. And he basically mm. said, well, this isn't going to work and walked out. And so my wife's in a puddle on the floor and, you know, I'm in shock. And we met with our pastor shortly after that. Uh, and we had just started going back to church of the apostles in Atlanta and um, he, we sat down with him. We said, "You know, we're, we're a wreck. What do we do?" And he said, "Well, it sounds to me." we well, told him all the story. Sounds to me like you've got two choices. He said, "You can do that because they had they said there's one more option, the nuclear option for In Vitro." And I said, "You can do that," and that was very expensive. And there's like a maybe a ten percent chance. He said, "Or you can adopt." And there's a hundred percent chance of that. And at that time. Um, I was against it. I didn't, I didn't want to raise someone else's children. That's what was in my brain.
0: Mm.
1: And, um, and then uh, Angel had was just cleaning out our dresser or something one day and found this pamphlet that a friend of ours, when we lived in Colorado for three years just prior to that, her friend had uh, they had had, they had three kids of their own, but they went and adopted a little girl um, from Kazakhstan, a little blonde headed girl from Kazakhstan. And she found that pamphlet. <clears throat> she said, would, would you consider it? And, um, and that's when God, you know, God turned my heart and I said, to, yeah, I think I would consider that. So we talked to them and then we talked to their agency and, uh, and that's when, you know, God laid it on our hearts and we said, yeah, we're going to go through with this. And at that moment we became paperwork pregnant and it was, it was father's day of, uh, of 2004. And over the next 13 months, um, what a journey and you know paperwork and m- money so expensive uh, and more paperwork and a lot of heartbreak as we saw um, as with some things some things broke in the you know the, in the process um, and uh, some really serious looks at yourself when you have a home study done you know any idiot can be a dad but you have to basically get an FBI probe to do to adopt and we had wow. to go through that. It was brutal. And um, so we, we did get through that. And then uh, we came back. Uh, we spent eight weeks in country in Kazakhstan in 2005. And that was at the, 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 the peak of the business that we talked about. I left. And, you know, I don't, I, I never know if this is a compliment to me or a slap at me and it doesn't matter. But when I left the company grew so i was gone for two months and the company grew during those during those two yeah, months yeah we could,
0: we could probably dissect that and we probably unfortunately know the answer but yeah. we don't want to state it right
1: no we're not going there so um, you know and during that during that we we had they had sent us a picture they said here's your they give you what they call the referral and they give you the picture of the, the child that, that you're going to adopt and they, we were going in for two and uh, they sent us a picture of two boys and so we made copies of them they're all over the refrigerator all over computers everything and um and we got there and uh we met these two boys and one of them just wanted nothing to do with us mm. and uh wouldn't bond and, and just it, it fought us at every turn and we thought how do we what do we do here and the, the our adoption coordinator was she's a russian lady strong russian lady very straightforward just say no and we said how can we say no to the child that god has picked out for us and she just was real matter of fact you adopt another child and we we literally spent an entire night weeping over this decision mm-hmm. and um and she our coordinator made it so i don't know if that were the word business like but it was just okay then here's what we do and she just walked us through it very clearly and that was a I don't know. I think it was a Tuesday morning. I really don't know. Um, and we had to go in and tell the adoption director, the director of the, the baby home that we were no longer going to adopt this, pursue adoption with this child. And we're weeping as we say this. And as we're in that meeting, our adoption coordinator's husband, who they kind of work as a team comes walking in and he's holding hands with this little boy. And they, we just stood there didn't think, and they're talking back and forth and rushing, going a million miles an hour. and We're just like, no idea what's happening to us and um and at that moment that morning only for a few hours that child that had brought in the room was available to adopt hmm. well i thought it was a little boy because they had their hair cut real short turns out it's the little girl who uh, my daughter who's just turning about to turn 18. and i look i took one look at her and she looked up at me with these eyes of it's the same my wife has a picture of herself as a four-year-old where she's looking up at you with just this
0: please
1: you know this innocent but playful and that's what this little girl looked up at me like that and i we knew instantly so this is this is the girl sign us up and um so that that was a emotionally traumatic 24 48 hours but the other end was now we have this boy who we we loved from day one and he jumped on us for uh i gotta tell you that part and now this girl who we just instantly fell in love with, but the boy I'd, I'd skip that part. When we met the, the the first one, the boy who we eventually adopted, it's now William. He, uh, they, we're in a room together, and uh, and they bring him in the room, and they say something in German, Russian, who knows what, and he comes running up to me, and he grabs me by the neck, and he's got a cold, and he's still all running. He says, "Papa," and just we just wept. I mean, it was incredible. But he hugged my neck, and he said, "Papa." And, you know, he, he just turned 18. Um, so eight weeks later, <clears throat> we get home uh, with these two kids and they they ad- adopt, adapt like there's nothing to it. They take over the house and we go back and we look at this, this video that someone had sent us um, that we had seen before we left. It's a video of their Christmas ceremony at the baby home. And they call it, it's not Christmas, they call it Father Freeze. It's, it's Christmas, but it's a very different culture. And uh, somebody had sent it to us because they said, I think this is the boy you're going to adopt. And he's in this crazy yellow banana looking outfit. He looks like something out of a cartoon. And it's definitely him. And we had watched it before. And um, when we watched it before we left, you know, we were looking at it, going, oh my gosh, that's him. And we, that was when we had the picture of the two boys on our fridge and everywhere. And we see the picture of the one boy that we eventually adopted, holding hands and dancing with this little girl.
0: Oh, how cool.
1: It was that little girl that we adopted oh. that we didn't know. We saw in a video months before we left and Angel breaks down weeping when she sees that video because she said, I want a girl so bad. And then fast forward a few months, that's the girl we brought home. So now we have this video of them long before we ever met them. dancing when they're like two and a half, just wow. incredible.
0: That's beautiful. And now they're 18
1: and they're teenagers and everything that comes with that.
0: <laughs> so you're having fun. We won't discuss that in detail, but no, 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 no. One thing we don't do on this podcast, Kevin, is we don't really shy away from the faith aspect of it. And uh, I think one of the things you've got, you've got a scripture, I think it might be on Twitter or something. Romans one sixteen. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God and to salvation to everyone that believeth. it what, what did God have to do with this process you just talked about with adoption? You mentioned him a couple of times.
1: Gosh, uh, he had to, God had to change my heart.
0: Which um, was a big deal, did. right? For us, yep. for us guys.
1: Yep. Pretty big deal. Did that very clearly. And that was not a painful process. It was just a, Oh, okay. I can do that. Whereas yesterday I didn't want to, um, only God can change our hearts. And then, uh, God had to provide the finances because international adoption and travel. I mean, we were, we stayed in the hotel for, for 56 days. And, uh, he provided almost down to the penny, the exact amount of money we needed for that in one transaction. And, uh, and then he had to, uh, he had to walk us through saying no to the child that we thought he wanted us to adopt. And then in that very moment when she was available, because she uh Lena Arlena now she wasn't available until that morning that was when a time frame from somebody else had run out and that morning she was available and only that morning so
0: because you were at the right place at the right time you right divine connection
1: divine and and that was and there was this instant bond and you you know part of the reason i think uh, in my immaturity saying i don't want to raise someone else's kids was that I don't, I don't know them. They're not mine. Oh my gosh. Nothing could be further from the truth. And you know, when, when God adopts us as his children, we are his and he made us, he knit us in our mother's womb. He made us, he knows everything about us. And you think, how can that be possible from human to human? But I often forget that I adopted these kids because there's so much like us and we, you know, we bonded so well that it, it, it's all, it's often just, I don't, I don't ever think about it until it comes up. Oh, where were you born? Oh God, that's right. We adopted, you know, it's not something that's top of mind every day, but um, you know, God had to work all that out and he did.
0: That's awesome. And thanks for sharing that. And I, my hope is, is that someone listening in, it'll be a blessing to them that uh, obviously it was not necessarily an easy journey, very not challenging, even very difficult, probably tested a lot of areas in y'all's relationship. My guess, you and Angel had a lot of discussions, we'll call it, <laughs> right?
1: One way to put it. Yeah.
0: And, and then, you know, the big faith picture, the cool thing is to me is that obviously those type things in life, works that faith muscle so that that muscle is now bigger it's stronger and it's prepared and i love the analogy you said you know god chose us and you chose these children it's just uh, adoption is the perfect metaphor for us being grafted it, in
1: it is it and is perfect cool. and i've used that a number of times in in whether i'm giving my testimony or teaching a sunday school or whatever i've used that that analogy of of you know how how you love someone so much and you know how you discipline them and how you treat them and all the all the things that you can say our relationship with God uh, when he adopts us as children it's, it's 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 identical to what happens when we adopt a child um, and it's it's staggering to think when you think through that process of how God can can work in both hearts
0: yeah thank you for sharing that i do have a question about faith and business do you have any struggles at all with your faith and then stepping into the business world, or your business world, and your faith, and if not, how do you reconcile that? I know some people struggle with that.
1: I don't have any trouble bringing it, you know, bringing it in, and I'm, and that's why I put Romans 16 up there. And I get asked about it a lot, um, because in the tech world, it's it's not always, uh, shall we say, evangelical. Um, in mm-hmm. fact, it's sometimes it's it's quite um, uh, quite atheistic and and even antagonistic uh if not uh worse towards believers um because it's it, just the nature of that sector of the world but there's a very strong contingent of uh of believers within the tech world spe- specifically here in atlanta and so <clears throat> for a long time i i struggled with you know when i was i was on my own it was after i sold the, the the company and i was on my own trying to be a, a freelancer or a consultant or whatever you want to call it and i, I struggled with it because i saw or felt like um, if, if I didn't say the right thing, I wouldn't get the gig. Um, but God helped me overcome that knowing that, okay, you just stand up for what you're supposed to stand up for and I'll send you the gigs.
0: And he did. Nice. Every time. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think you might know, but you know, my wife works for a Silicon Valley company and, and I see a lot of what you're talking about. Yeah. And I think what it does is it galvanizes our belief system. You have to know, we have to know what we believe. And if we do, then, then we can pitch it, right? So that's a good segue. That's a good segue into practice your pitch. Great book that Kevin has. So we're going to, we're going to move into that here. Tell us the story of how uh, this is a rapid segue, right? Tell us the story of how pitch practice started. What was it? What is it? And then I wanna get into a few of the principles that are in your book as we wrap up today.
1: So right after in 2012, I had sold the, the, the company that I started uh, in 1999 and <clears throat> I jumped, now I know I jumped way too quick into creating another one. Um, so I started another company and was figured, I, I assumed I had to raise some money because it, it was a B2C uh, um, smartphone app that you don't scale that without, without money. And so I was, I didn't know what I was doing. I'd never raised money. I'd started all those other businesses on a shoestring and bootstrapped them. So, um, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I went down to this place to the, the, what's called ATDC down at Georgia tech. It's the, the Georgia tech incubator. And they offered a, a monthly meeting, they called it pitch gauntlet. And it was the four principals there from, a, a an organization called venture lab at Georgia tech very successful commercialization um, uh, organization and they would listen to your bitch and they would just beat you to death. I mean, they were, they were, they were professional about it, but they weren't nice. And it was good. It was, it was what everybody needed. And, and I said, I need more of this. Can you guys do this more often? And they said, no, we're, it's once a month 7am on a Tuesday and in Midtown, and I lived in, in Roswell. I said, that's, that's just crazy. And so um, I asked them, "They, if could you come do it sometime at, at Atlanta Tech Village? Because I just become a member there. And they're were like, we're at, we're at Georgia Tech. Why do, we're not doing anything. You want to come here? Come here. If you don't, don't. So I said, OK, would you mind if I did something like this up at Atlanta Tech Village? They said, we don't care. Do whatever you want. It's your business. So I asked a bunch of uh, everybody I knew and met at, at, at Atlanta Tech Village at the time. It was very, very small they were in the building process. I said, would you guys meet? And, and I, I want to give my pitch and I want you guys to critique it. And so they did. And, and then next week, more people showed up and next week, more people showed up. And, um, <clears throat> and then the, the week after that, they, they said, you need to, this is a meeting. Now you need to name it and go for it. So we, we had, it was baseball season and I had said startup BP, startup batting practice. And that lasted about two weeks. And they were like, that's a terrible name. So we called it pitch practice. And that was, uh, that was in June of 2013. So how many
0: later, how how many have, how many pitches have you seen now? Roughly 3,500. Wow. Good, bad, ugly. Yes.
1: All, all the above. There's been several very successful businesses that were pitched and launched in that room on a Friday afternoon at Atlanta tech village. And there's been a lot of people who, who tried to pitch, tried to pitch and went on to do other things. You know, it, it, I think it fits about the averages that most most startups fail. Mm-hmm. Um, but given, if you have two entrepreneurs and one of them can articulate their idea really well and the other one can't, the one who, are, who can articulate it's gonna win every time.
0: So is it possible that you may have seen as many pitches if not more than anyone else out there? Is mm-hmm. that possible?
1: No, it's not possible.
0: No, and it's up there. you have to Come on. You've seen a lot.
1: I've seen thousands, but you know, if you, if you ask uh, any of the, you know, the folks from White like, Combinator or TechStars, stars, any, of, they've seen tens of thousands of pitches because they go through a process. They, you know, where they said, all right, we're scheduling all the pitches. We're going to hear 300 this week. And they'll do that over and over and over. And they've done it for years and years and years. And uh, right. they have a different outcome obviously, but I've helped. Numerous people get ready for a Y Combinator or a Techstars or whatever pitch.
0: Sure, 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 sure. So now one, one comment, a couple of things I want to pull from the book here. You make the statement here, everybody, and you re- repeat it, everybody is pitching all the time. There might be some people listening in going, oh, this is," I don't need to listen to this because I'm not in business. I'm not raising money. I'm not anything like that. Explain that statement. Nobody thinks about, about it, much less practices, but you should. Talk to
1: us about that. All right, so let's go to the most base thing. Um, you know, think about Tim Winders in high school. Did you just walk up to, do that. to that girl <laughs> and ask her to to the prom or to oh, homecoming?
0: Man, you don't do go do there, Kevin.
1: A million times in front of the mirror or talking to the hey guys. Should, when, when should I ask her, dude? When should I ask her? Oh my gosh, should I ask her now? That's you. There's no question. That's a pitch. And mm-hmm. a very dear friend of mine. Um, his, he's been married to his wife for I think 32 years now. And, uh, and he will tell you that he married way. You know, he said he outkicked his this coverage by a long shot and the other choice he would tell you that, that she was dating, you know, him and him and another guy. And the other guy is now a surgeon, a spinal surgeon makes $900,000 a year. I said, why didn't she marry him? He said, salesmanship. It's a pitch.
0: Well, I have to stop you here. You may not know this. You mentioned Georgia Tech earlier. I'm a Georgia Tech guy, graduate of Georgia Tech. And I pitched my future wife at the time who was a Miss University of Georgia. So, you know, we could dissect that in so many different ways. I'm sure you could too. I think you're a UGA fan. I'm not, but I did went and pick out the the beauty there and <laughs> <laughs> but it, but that pitch it was not an elevator pitch by the way it took me a year and a half it was right. love at first sight for me it took about a year year and a half for her to catch on so there's probably a, a whole story there so all right so definitely that any other example I mean we talked about faith earlier how, how about people in ministry or or sharing their faith
1: well you know if if you're an evangelical you have to uh, you're not gonna you're not gonna walk somebody down the Roman road the first time you ever talk to them. So in the idea, let's let's back up a little bit. The idea behind the 32nd pitch is never close the sale, It's to advance the relationship. So think about that first time you approached glory and whatever you were pitching, it was something about you and me together. And then the next time, okay, you got the first date. Good job. That second, that's a pitch and you're, you're just trying to move the relationship forward. Now at some point there was a fairly big pitch it involved a ring. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: That's a pitch. And if you, if you hadn't gone through that in your mind, well, you, I'm not going to go into what I did, but my wife will gladly tell you, uh, it it wasn't the greatest moment of my life. Um, but every bit of that's a pitch and the same thing for any, if you're sharing your faith there, nobody cares what you know until they know how much you care. So you, they're not going to hear the gospel from you until you know them and they know you.
0: Yeah.
1: So the thirty-second pitch is about moving the relationship a little bit at a time.
0: Right, right, right. So it's, and and I think one of the things you state in the book is it's like you're not trying to get money; you're just looking to get to the next meeting yeah. or the next whatever phone call, get the video, whatever. Yeah. So you're not closing the deal there. How many how many people did you see in the three thousand or so that they, I want I almost use the term jump the shark, which I don't think is a good analogy, but they 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 went too fast.
1: Uh, I, don't, I don't have a number, but it's it's a lot. They they forget that they're just trying to move the ball for you. The football analogy works. You're not designing a play to score a touchdown from the 23-yard line. You're designing a play to be one of three plays to get you 10 yards. And so they forget that that they're just trying to move the relationship, and they go into selling and telling how it works, and they just and – and I'll stop them and say, how long have you been talking? They said, I don't know, 38 seconds? How about three minutes? Yeah. Shut up. Sure. You're, you're done. You every, you've lost everybody in the room because you wouldn't be quiet.
0: Right, right. 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 So so how critical? Let me give a background of this. We we were watching a masterclass just last night from Sarah Blakely. Um, I hope I got her name right. Who started Spanx? Yeah. yeah. And she tells the story. A lot of people heard it of her going to Neiman Marcus and pitching ten minute pitch. Uh, what this new invention she had she invented Spanx and and um, and the thing that that I noticed when I was watching this last night was just the conviction and belief and attitude in her product now she's telling this story uh, you know 20 years later but I perceived that she believed in it then how critical is attitude belief you know some people say I'm just going to fake it and you know bull my way through it, but talk about attitude.
1: There's a certain amount of that faking that that you have to do because you're not always confident. But when you, you know, this goes, part of this goes back to the, the lean startup methodology. When you've identified a problem in the marketplace, whatever marketplace it is, and you, you validated that it's a problem, then you can have confidence in, in very clearly stating that problem. And that's the, that's the meat of the pitch. That's the heart of the pitch. Your solution doesn't matter. Your, how you solve it is irrelevant. If you can say, I solved that problem with this kind of technology, you've got the next meeting, but it's that it, when for confidence comes from knowledge and experience. And if you've lived, you know, you spent however many years in the real estate market and you, you are very confident in walking into uh, you know, a, somebody's office and talking about a specific piece of the real estate, uh, industry, you know, it cold, cause you've been there through way down in the depth, depths of, of uh, financial crisis and you've had success at it. You know, it cause you have confidence. So you're confident in doing that. So it's not that you can fake confidence. You can fake enthusiasm, but if you're not confident because you know the problem, you're probably not ready.
0: Yeah, I've noticed, sometimes sometimes I've noticed people, it sounds as if they're trying to convince themselves. Right. And there's a fine line, I think, between trying to convince yourselves and trying to influence or convince others. Yeah. And maybe that's kind of what you just hit on there.
1: Yeah, and the, 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 the key to that really is the identifying and articulating the problem. And, you know, you can look all around, there's all kind of different ways of saying it, but the 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 one of the principles of uh, 500 Startups, which is another uh, tech accelerator, is one of his more famous quotes: "Is is nobody cares about your solutions; they care about their problems. Mm. How you solve my problem, I don't care. If you can solve it, I'm good. I don't, know. I don't care how you do it. Tell me you can solve it, and, t- and and articulate that to me in words that mean something to me."
0: Yeah. It's too often thing we get
1: caught up in our own our own uh, our own vocabulary, and we should be using the vocabulary of the customer.
0: Yeah. I noticed you kind of lay out some steps here uh, for, you know, your name, your organization, problem you're solving, solution, customer, and ask, but you really hammer the problem you're solving. It seems as if that's foundation, correct?
1: Absolutely. If, if you can't articulate that, you're going nowhere. Right. You, you will not get past go because if you, you know, if you're trying to, to create a business that doesn't alleviate someone's pain no matter how per- trivial it's perceived to be, if you can't alleviate someone's pain, you have no value. And when you can solve a, 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 a pain problem, you instantly have value, maybe with one person, maybe with a billion people, but okay. if you have to be able to identify the problem, validate the problem, and then articulate the problem. The, the solution again, is that secondary.
0: Excellent. So, big learning points from running pitch practice. It may be that, anything else as we kind of finish up here?
1: Um, consistency is key. Uh, there was times when I didn't want to do pitch practice and, um, and I did it anyway. And I always came away from that particular time going, oh, I really don't want to do this. It's Friday afternoon, come on. And I always came away from that particular meeting just overwhelmed with, uh, with fulfillment and knowing that, okay, this is where I'm supposed to be. It's what I'm supposed to be doing. And I'm, I'm genuinely helping people who, you know, there's, there's not a, they can go and ask for advice, but there's not an environment, uh, where they can, you know, 20 or 30 of their peers that they don't know or give them advice and feedback that they would never otherwise get.
0: Excellent. Very good. One thing I heard, we could go through a lot of things here. This book is packed with great information. I've actually ordered a physical copy and a digital copy off Amazon. I guess that's the best place for people to get it. If they want to go get that book.
1: Pretty sure it's the only place.
0: Ah, well, there you go. That makes it, (laughs) makes it very simple there. So anyway, uh, Kevin, what's next for you? What's, what's coming up? What are you excited about in the future? Any, any, any big plans, projects, anything else?
1: Well, I've got two uh, 18 year old kids. And so we're in the, the pre-launch process, and um, as you've been through, that's a that's an exciting prospect, uh, daunting, and frustrating, and all of a lot of a lot of other adjectives. But that's the the big thing on the radar here at the Sandlin household is, is getting well, teenagers launched into adulthood with with some confidence that they can go forward.
0: Yeah, that's. That's when I think we all need to be praying for each other even more, when we Amen. begin seeing those things coming up. So, hey, listen, the title of this, uh, as we wrap up here, I'm gonna ask you a question. I would not prep you for this. The title of this is Seek, Go Create. There's a lot of background to that and things like that. Is so there one of those words that kind of jumps out to you and why more than others? Seek, go, create, as we wrap up here?
1: Um, create is is what jumps out at me. The, the, the businesses that I've launched and Pitch Practice itself, Um, they were, it's an enormous, I don't know, feeling of accomplishment when you create something that wasn't there before. It didn't exist and you put it there and I can look back at, at CWNP, the business we started back in 1990, it's still there. And, you know, pitch practice as, as weird as it is and as, you know, as free as it is, it's still there. Six and a half years later, no promotion, no nothing. I've tried to get out of it. People just keep showing up. Um, it's still there. So creating something that wasn't there before, I think is, is, uh, it, it's great. It's an, an enormous sense of accomplishment, um, but it's, it's also something that um, that a lot of people don't take the time to do for a lot of good reasons, a lot of reasons that might not stack up, but, um, but when, when they do it, um, they, you, you grow so much in that creation process because now you can stand beside somebody and go, I've done that before. How can I help you?
0: Wow. That's good. Yeah. I think we were created to create and we just feel as we're doing that. So that is awesome. Kevin, we could keep talking. We've gone about 10, 12 minutes over what I would have wanted to, but thank you so much. Thank you for sharing. And I believe that many of the things you've said will be a blessing to people, especially even when we went into the business items, but especially the personal. I appreciate it very much. So thank you for that.
1: I'm happy to be here. And I really appreciate the opportunity to catch up with you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We'll put down in the show notes ways that people can connect with you. I think you've shared that with our people and are open to it and can get the book. And I just want to thank everyone for listening in. I appreciate everyone listening to the Seek Go Create podcast. So until next time, signing off here. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Seek Go Create podcast, a part of the SGC network. For those looking for excellence, moving towards success, and creating something new, we are constantly discussing bold new topics and ideas here on the network, so be sure to subscribe to be notified when we post new episodes. We look forward to sharing more with you next time, but until then, enjoy the journey.